Live from Cap Radio in Sacramento, this is Inside. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. Like many cities, Monterey Park has a thriving Asian-American community with a legacy to the fabric of California. But many are learning about Monterey Park this week through the aftermath of violence and loss. Following a mass shooting that has claimed the lives of at least 11 people at a dance hall following Lunar New Year celebrations. This city to the east of downtown Los Angeles is home to some 60,000 residents, roughly two-thirds of whom identify as Asian, according to the recent census. And as a native Angelino myself, I always knew of Monterey Park as the true Chinatown in Los Angeles. And there are other similar names throughout the decades, from America's first suburban Chinatown or the Chinese Beverly Hills, something our next guest knows also quite well. Zhang Park is the Asian American Communities Reporter for the Los Angeles Times and joins us with more on why Monterey Park is significant for the Asian American community. Good morning. Good morning. So I saw your tweet the morning after the shooting. You were at the Lunar New Year celebration in Monterey Park just hours before everything that unfolded. And I'd really like to start from there because I think that really just captures the heart of what we're talking about today. Can you take us back to the festivities on Saturday and what brought you there? This was the first Lunar New Year festivity in Monterey Park since 2020, so three years. Um, And frankly, my friend was the one who kind of dragged me there, but I wanted to go because it's such a big event um, and it's such a momentous moment for the Asian American and Chinese American community to finally get a sense of the normalcy after three years of the pandemic that has hit them hard in so many ways. And I was struck by how big the crowd of the tens of thousands of people, they were getting, you know, skewers, lamb skewers, they were eating stinky tofu, things like those, they were buying jewelries. It was really an amazing sight to see. Um, and I was just there enjoying the festivity. I was there five, six o'clock, about three, four hours before the tragedy happened. And it was really an, an, a great moment to be there with the community, just seeing and eating all the great things. Um, it was it was great. Yeah, anytime I go to Monterey Park, it is purely for the food. I'm from Eagle Rock, so it was a 15, 20-minute drive away. Um, You grew up in Southern California, but you also call Southern California, as well as Seoul, where you were born, your home. What did you know about Monterey Park prior to becoming a journalist? Um, I, my my one of my best friend goes to, lives in Monterey Park. He goes to Marquette High School, which is right in um right next to Monterey Park. I think it's technically in Alhambra, but it borders Monterey Park. And so I've always known Monterey Park as a place that has really good boba, really good ramen shop, really good restaurants. If I want a really good Asian food, Monterey Park is the place to go to. I mean, I went to school in Westwood, UCLA. And to be honest with you, there's not really good food in the west side of, good Asian food in the west side of L.A. So every time I want to get really good Chinese food, I go to Monterey Park and eat a hot pot or eat a dim sum. Um, So it was a really great place for me to, you know, get that sense of community um, in the city. You mentioned that you were there in the evening, uh, the evening hours before that shooting unfolded. And the shooting happened at around 1020 in the evening on Saturday. When did you find out about what happened at the Star Ballroom? Um, around 11.30 was when I got a call from my editor, and I was out there midnight um, just talking to different folks. 
um, people were alerted to the citizen app, I think around 11 o'clock. Um, and I really got to talk to the eyewitness, the restaurant owner who owned a restaurant right across the street from where the ballroom was. Um, he told me that three people rushed into the restaurant, told them to lock the door because there was a guy with a machine gun or gunman out out there. Um, so that was about one o'clock. So that's kind of when I really started to figure out that this was really a serious moment, serious attack um, in the community. So I would say about two, three hours. And the morning after, you wrote an important piece the day after this mass shooting that really gave context to the Asian-American history of Monterey Park. You, uh, The headline included America's first suburban Chinatown, a place that is about 15 minutes east of Chinatown in downtown Los Angeles on, on a decent day with traffic. How did Monterey Park grow to become a place that is predominantly Asian and Asian-American? Um, it began um, in the mid 1970s when a real estate developer began advertising Monterey Park as the Chinese Beverly Hills to people in Hong Kong, Taiwan, and eventually mainland China. And they all started coming into Monterey Park as the first place in their immigrant journey. Um, and some stayed for their lives, some moved elsewhere. Uh, but since the 1970s and 80s, it really became this hub of hub of the Chinese-American, Taiwanese-American community. Um, and there was that real sense of discrimination and bigotry that those Asian-Americans had suffered um, when they came. There was the famous controversy in the 1980s and 90s about having signs in English only as a way to try to deter some of those immigrant businesses. And there was the bumper sticker, really last American to leave Monterey Park, please bring the flag mm-hmm. um, that was going around in the residence, still, you know, the community persevered. And by 2000s, by 2010s, it became a majority Asian American and Monterey Park is what it is now. Yeah. I mean, it's been written about, I mean, I was going back to LA Times articles from 1989, 1999 about Monterey Park. And, and the one that was over 20 years ago in, in 1999, at that time, even Monterey Park was the only city in the United States with an Asian majority. Is it still largely a Chinese American community or it has or has it grown to include other Asian, South Asian and Pacific Islander countries? It's still largely Chinese-American community, um, people from Taiwan, Hong Kong, China as well. Um, you know, there are sizable Asian population, uh, Vietnamese, for instance. There's also a sizable Latino population, about 25% of the city's Latino. Um, so it, it, it's a mix, but it still remains, uh, uh, you know, largely Chinese, Taiwanese-American community, I would say. Given that it's now been just over 72 hours since that shooting at the Star Ballroom Dance Studio, uh, give us a sense of where the community is in processing a collective grief that I imagine is still just deeply palpable. Right. And I mean, I've been talking to several community members throughout. I've been covering vigils and there was a sense of we will be with you. But also, I think what happened in Hoffman Bay just a couple of days ago um, kind of reopened the ones that even yet even begun to heal yet. There was that sense of, oh, my goodness, this is happening again and again. So I think we still have a while to go until the community can fully, truly recover from the shock um, of the last 72 hours, I think, of us, though. I've been losing count, but um, it, it, I think it would take 
bit of time. Right. And that mass shooting in Half Moon Bay happened, I think, less than 48 hours after the mass shooting in Monterey Park. And just last week, I believe on Thursday on our show on Insight, we had a conversation with an Asian-American psychiatrist who wrote a novel capturing the challenges of mental health among the AAPI, particularly older generations, many immigrant communities who who come with nothing to create a new life and opportunities, they don't have the means or even the bandwidth to treat trauma and mental health challenges. Is that on your mind as well this week? Right. We wrote a story that just got out this morning that talks about the sense of isolation and this mental health challenge that especially elders in the Asian American community face. They suffered a lot of trauma. They suffered um, trauma from various war, Korean War, Vietnam War. They also suffered trauma from immigration um, and, and trying to build their life here in the U.S. And the pandemic really intensified their sense of isolation as well because they couldn't go to the senior center or go to community center and, and be a part of the community program and be part of that routine that had defined them for much of their um, later lives. So that's been a concern for me and also for the community is it's how do we um, recover from all of this and, and how do we, you know, rebuild that infrastructure, rebuild that sense of belonging, sense of um, being together amongst our elders and amongst the community, I mm-hmm. think. Given that you're currently focusing on Asian American communities for the Los Angeles Times, but prior to that, you were up here in Sacramento. You were at the Sacramento Bee as an economic mobility reporter. You covered how policies affect the lives of workers. Are there any parallels that you've noticed about AAPI communities in Los Angeles and Sacramento? Uh, I, I mean, it's diverse. Um, it's, you know, vibrant. Um, I, I do think Something that I think a lot about that carried on for my job in Sacramento Bay and what's relevant in what's happening now is that Monterey Park is not just a city of wealthy. It's a city of low-class immigrant workers who start their lives here. Um, there are a lot of undocumented immigrants here as well. There are people who are in boarding house sleeping on people's couches for $15 a night. Um, so I think about that a lot, given what I had covered in Sacramento, you know, we think of Asian American as modern minority, right? We know that's a myth, and, and we know that that's not only wealthy Asian Americans out there, but really, you know, this city shows that contrast, I think, really well. Um, you know, it's a city where one apartment goes for $3,300 and other apartment goes for $15 a night. So it, it's really interesting contrast that really shows the full spectrum of Asian American and and their lives um, here in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Given that all of this is taking place during Lunar New Year um, on Sunday, uh, in light we were preparing a Lunar New Year segment, our Insight producer, Victor Crow Martinez, he went to South Sacramento in the area known as Little Saigon, which is a large Vietnamese among community. And many heard of the mass shooting the night before in Monterey Park, but they decided to continue as planned with festivities and celebrations. Are communities in Los Angeles responding in the same way or differently? Um, so Little Saigon here in Owens County, um, they had Tet Festival um, that went on even despite the tragedy. Alhambra is planning to carry on their Lunar New Year celebration this weekend, which is expected to draw about 20,000 people to downtown Alhambra. And I think all of this is to say the community, even though they're hurt, they, they have much to heal from, but they still want to celebrate, they still want to mark the occasion, they still want 
to get the sense of normalcy in their life. I mean, I want that too, right? I, I plan to go to this Alhambra event this weekend too. Um, not as a reporter covering it, but as a person, um, you know, as an Asian American myself. So I think there is that sense of, you know, we, we are healing, we are hurting, but we need to do this, you know, all of those things that, 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 that give us the sense of normalcy in our lives. So um, I think that's kind of how the community is feeling right now. Given that the mass shooting in Monterey Park is still being investigated, it's not being called racially motivated at this time. But when having conversations on our show earlier this week, it is still very triggering for the AAPI community where there is a documented spike in hate crimes in recent years. Can tragedies like these also be a teachable moment? That's what we are hoping. I mean, I, I hope it's a teachable moment in so many ways, um, especially on the mental health aspect, on the isolation aspect, on our elder care aspect. All of those, I think it's a teaching moment. But right, I mean, uh, you know, when I talk to people and, and ask them how they felt initially when they heard the news, the first thing that they immediately came to mind was, was this a hate crime? Was this inspired by hate against people like us? And I think that's just a terrible thing for our community to go through. And I think it will just take so so long of a time to heal from that and, and, and to get our mind off of that because it's real, right? The hate that our Asian community faces is very real. Um, so it's very reasonable for the community to feel this way. Um, so I think there is a lot of things that elected officials and others need to do um, on this issue of anti-Asian hate, this anti-Asian bigotry, to make sure that Asian community don't feel the same um, when something like this happens again. Um, so I think there's a lot much to be done. Zhang, thank you so much for the time. Thank you so much. Zhang Park is an Asian American communities reporter for the Los Angeles Times. Up next, two state lawmakers who represent Monterey Park join us about the conversations that are taking place at the state capitol and if the recent mass shootings in the state will impact the legislative session which just got underway. You're listening to Insight on your NPR station, Cap Radio. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. You're listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. We're going to continue our conversation about the mass shooting in Monterey Park by inviting two of its elected leaders to tell us more about this community and how they're beginning to process and heal. Joining us now is State Senator Susan Rubio and State Assembly Member Mike Fong, both of whom were in Monterey Park celebrating the Lunar New Year just hours before this tragedy began. Senator Rubio and Assembly Member Fong, thanks for taking the time this morning. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Assemblymember Fong, I want to start with you. This past week has been extremely difficult for you and the communities you represent. How are you and your staff doing this morning? Uh, thank you so much uh, for that question. Uh, staff is uh, very proud of the staff and all the hard work and efforts. have been hanging in there. It's been a very challenging uh, few days here in Monterey Park and the Singapore Valley. I'm very grateful for their leadership. And we're all shocked, horrified, and devastated uh, by these tragic circumstances and there's um we're uh, just trying to make sure that we are supporting all the families and everyone affected by this tragedy in Monterey Park and the Singapore Valley thank you 
And you were in Monterey Park as well, celebrating the Lunar New Year just hours before the shooting that unfolded. We were talking with Zhang with the L.A. Times. He was there as well. And this was a celebration that was long overdue after a couple years of the pandemic. What can you tell us about the celebration during the day? Thank you so much. It was a beautiful celebration during the day. Senator Ruby and I and a number of uh, officials were there at the opening ceremony. And this Community Monterey Park leads the way on all the Lunar New Year celebrations in the San Gabriel Valley as the first suburban Chinatown, uh, the heart of the San Gabriel Valley with over 65% Asian American uh, residents in the city with 61,000 folks. The the festival was a beautiful way to kick off the Lunar New Year uh, celebrations. And tragically, a few years, a few hours later, during the dawn of the most auspicious time in our Lunar calendar, Lunar New Year, the rabbit, uh, with which symbolizes peace and hope, uh, all that peace and hope was shattered, and uh, it was uh, it was pretty crazy. Yeah, Assembly Member Fong, you both you both have been understandably very busy with civic leaders, constituents, with your staff, and we really thank you for taking the time. It took it took a lot to get you on here because of how busy how busy your schedules have been. Understandably, what kind of conversations are you having at the state capitol? Thank you so much. We're having conversations. I'm having conversations with Senator Rubio and our uh, colleagues in the state legislature, talking to my colleagues uh, as well, who are leading a gun violence prevention working group. Um, also in conversations with the governor, the AG, and uh, all our state officials. And we know that California is at the forefront of good control policies. And we know that the legislature has also provided millions of funding for education campaigns to help individuals their family members and others on how to obtain restraining orders to keep guns away from individuals who are at risk of harming themselves or others through these red flag uh, laws. I'm also having conversations with the Office of Emergency Services to see how we can conduct these education campaigns in additional languages such as Chinese Mandarin, Chinese Cantonese. And we're definitely tracking the legislation that's been introduced this year. And we know that there's a lot more work to be done around gun control policy. And this tragedy reminds us that there's so much more work to be done. Yeah. Well, well, let's get to that a little bit, because the tragedy that happened in Monterey Park is just one of three mass shootings. Oh, Senator Rubio, is that you? Yes, it is. I hope you guys can hear me. Yes, I can hear you. Thank you. I knew we're having some technical issues with you, but happy that you're able to join us. Well, before we get to that, I'll table that question. Now that we have you, Senator Rubio, you know, what would you like people to know about the San Gabriel Valley, the community of Monterey Park and the district that you serve? Well, First of all, just thank you for for having us here and giving voice to this tragedy because we definitely want to just convey to our constituents, our residents, and everyone that's been worried about this community that, first of all, it is a safe community. Uh, the danger ha- is over. However, um, everyone has been so gracious in sending love, I mean, prayers, and just so good about taking care of each other. So I just want to commend everyone, uh, our faith leaders who've been here every single day praying for not only the community, but us as leaders. So I just want to start there and just wanted to say how beautiful this community is. I, you know, have the privilege of representing this community. Clearly, I am a Latina, but the diversity that we have in the state of California only makes us stronger. And this community is a testament of how beautiful a community can be if we 
um, encourage each other to support our differences, our cultures. And as already mentioned, I have the privilege of being on stage with uh, Assemblymember Mike Fong at the Lunar New Year. And it, it was beautiful. And I'm so saddened by the tragedy because we can see the joy in people's faces, the children, the families coming out of the pandemic. We needed that. And uh, we were brought back to a moment of of unfortunate tragedy, but we're so proud of this community and how strong they've been. And as I was talking to Assemblymember Fong, I mean, both of you have been understandably busy in in meetings, back-to-back meetings. What kind of conversations are you having at your office, Senator? Well, it's, you know, everyone's concerned about me, which I have to say what we're dealing as a staff with as a an office does not compare to what our families and the victims and the loved ones are going through. Um, I have to be honest that I have had moments of um, extreme emotion and and that's only because um, as more information comes out, as you get to know the stories of these families that lost a loved one. And even yesterday when we were at the vigil, we can actually see the faces of the victims that were placed in front of the crosses. And it's really difficult not to be, you know, emotional about the entire circumstance. So the conversation with myself, my staff and everyone around me, including, you know, members of our community is let's look out for one another. Let's make sure to ask people if they're okay, because even us as leaders sometimes need that comfort. And so I just wanna say thank you to everyone that's asked. As you mentioned that yesterday the names of all 11 victims were identified and now we have faces to these names. As an elected official representing this area, what is your role in supporting the families through this loss? Well, we've had so many calls coming in. Um, Well, first trying to help, but then we also have the other end where they just are seeking resources. So I know that Mike Fong, as well as myself and all our elected leaders have been forthcoming with information where they can reach, um, you know, numbers for services. Uh, in particular, as we know, the Langley Senior Center, which is here in Monterey Park, has been offering support services. We also have the Victim Service Bureau in L.A., LADA's office that's working closely with victims to ensure that they have access to the California Victims Compensation Board um, services. And that includes uh, making sure that they know that if they need therapy services, it's there. Uh, Assistance with funeral and burial costs, it's also available. Lodging options for themselves and their family members. When people are dealing with tragedies, uh, we think of what's happening in terms of their emotions, but we don't think of the financial aspect of it. So we want our families to know that there is resources and they need to reach out because they don't have to do this alone. Mm -hmm. Assemblymember Fong, I mean, what can you share about your work and your role in in helping the family members surrounding the the 11 loved ones that they lost? Thank you so much. As Senator Rubio mentioned, we've been getting information out to the community members, and we also want to make sure we're getting it out in language as well. So we've been circulating flyers. Uh, flyers were circulated yesterday as well at the uh, community vigil that Senator Rubio and I were at, and we're really making sure that our district offices are here to assist anyone who may need assistance accessing victim support services. So we are partnering with local organizations and different organizations on the ground that have also set up a GoFundMe to help provide additional assistance for family members as well. 
uh, but also getting the word out, as the center mentioned, around the victim compensation funds, the, the Mass Victim uh, Service Bureau, and other resources that are available. And then also the governor's office of emergency services providing additional resources uh, in collaboration with law enforcement. So, um, but we're trying to provide that comfort and that support to all uh, the victims of families affected by this tragedy. You bring up an important point about language um, because some of the victims' names were initially incomplete when they were released by the Los Angeles County Coroner's Office. And I bring it up because this has happened before during the mass shooting in Atlanta. How do these misidentifications happen within the Asian American Pacific Islander community? Assembly member? Thank you so much. It's very critical that as a community, as a state, that we provide materials uh, in different languages. And so we're pushing hard uh, with the um, various uh, departments and also working with the city of Monterey Park also. And then our office has also worked closely on translating a lot of the materials and just trying to get the information out through social media. I know Center Review's been getting out the content as well. And so as a state, we're making sure that we are providing these resources in language. It's so critical to meet the needs and families where they are uh, in language. And as the Senator, eloquently stated it's a very diverse community it's the first uh, city in the united states with an asian american majority it's a 65 percent asian 27 percent latino and as the center mentioned everyone in the community loves to be together and they practice tai chi they dance at the park there's a close relationship between the city and the residents and being there last night with the senator and everyone you just hear the stories from everyone how everyone's super uh, uber connected and so also working with our in-language ethnic media uh, getting the information out through the various uh, Chinese media outlets as well is, is critical, and that's something that uh, we've been pushing content out to the ethnic media outlets as well. Mm. You touched upon this, assembly member, but I want to ask both of you this. Now I'm going to talk about some policies that could potentially take shape at the state capitol, because the tragedy in Monterey Park is just one of multiple mass shootings in California in the last eight days. Seven people were killed in a mass shooting in Half Moon Bay this week, just 48 hours after the first shots were fired in Monterey Park. Then six more, including an infant, were killed in the Central Valley last week. And there was another mass shooting in Oakland this week. As elected leaders, you know, what do you think needs to be done in a state that already has some of the strictest gun laws in the country? Assemblymember Fong, I'll start with you. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, we know that California is in the forefront of gun control policies. And last year, I supported a number of measures that further limited who is able to obtain guns. To also hold manufacturers responsible for harm caused by the products uh, to limit the spread of assault weapons. But we know that there's a lot more work to be done. And uh, in collaboration with the Gun Violence Prevention Working Group in the legislature, uh, we'll be working on different measures to, I know there's different measures out there that are looking at excise taxes on ammunition and guns. Um, also looking at additional funding for red flag uh, laws to keep guns away from individuals who are at risk of harming themselves or others. And uh, my team and I are looking at possible ideas for legislation to be introduced. And we'll also continue, I'll also continue to advocate and help pass legislation to help prevent such tragedies uh, in the future. Senator Rubio? Yes, thank you for that question. If I may, I wanted to share some of the data that I've come across in the last couple of days and just speaks to the critical state of emergency here as it pertains to gun and gun violence. Uh, the data I came across was that in 2017, we had uh, 368 mass shootings. 2019, it grew slightly to 417 mass shootings in the United States. 2022, we were at 648 mass shootings. So it's growing exponentially. And even this month, 
when we haven't even completed the month of January, we're at 40 mass shootings already. So clearly we have a massive problem on our hands. Another um, point of, that I wanted to share is that, and this I got from um, some statistics that I came across, that when the Sandy Hook shooting occurred, the sales of guns were at 8 million in the United States. Today, the, the sales of guns have gone up to 20 million a year. So that just shows that the problem is growing exponentially and we have a lot of work ahead of us. And I want to point out that uh, even last year, we were on the steps of the Capitol and we were mourning the Uvalde shooting. And I remember sharing as a teacher how much it breaks my heart to envision our children in our classrooms. And there was a, a student who shared that um, the student had to put blood on himself, play dead, to survive the shooting. Uh, as we know in this tragedy, we had the young man who was so brave to tackle the gun away from that individual to save so many lives. And what I keep seeing is that we keep telling our children, you have to take care of yourselves because the adults in Washington are too afraid to take care of you. And it's time that we step up our efforts California has been very aggressive. Clearly, we have a lot more work to do, but we need our federal partners to join us in this fight. Finally, we only have about 30 seconds left. Assemblymember Fong, I want to end with you because you mentioned this. Uh, the Lunar New Year marks the year of the rabbit, and that's a year that's supposed to bring peace and hope, and that understandably has been shattered for many families and communities that were impacted by these tragedies. What gives you hope that this can help create an even stronger community? Monterey Park is a, such a tight-knit community. It's such a resilient community and a strong community. And we know that it's going to take days, months, and even years to heal. But the people of Monterey Park are stronger together. And together, uh, we're going to get through this uh, tragedy. And I'm very grateful for all the law enforcement officials for everything they're doing to keep our communities uh, safe. And so very grateful for all the outpouring of support for our community members here in Monterey Park and here in the San Gabriel Valley. And these are going to be very challenging times, but we're going to get through this uh, together. Assemblymember Fong and Senator Rubio, thank you so much for the time. Thank you. Have a thank good you day. So much. And that is State Senator Susan Rubio and Assemblymember Mike Fong, who represent the city of Monterey Park and surrounding communities east of Los Angeles. Still ahead, we'll be having more insight on CAP Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. We're back in just a moment. Welcome back to Insight on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. The Reading Railroad, St. James Place, Marvin Gardens, and of course, Boardwalk. These names are synonymous with the classic century-old board game Monopoly. Over the decades, the game has inspired countless thematic spinoffs, including even Sacramento-opoly. But one of these thematic inspirations has risen out of the ashes of the devastating 2018 campfire in Butte County. Paradise Opoly was created with the goal of helping those impacted by the fire heal from emotional wounds, as well as raise money to help them rebuild, which is still happening even years after the campfire. I spoke with the game's creator, Tanner Staus, a Paradise native who hopes to share the history and the culture of his hometown and leave a lasting legacy for years to come. I loved learning about Paradiseopoly. I guess just starting off with your history and your connection to, to Paradise and also the surrounding communities of Pulga, Konkau, and Megalia, what made it such a special place for you growing up? 
So I, I did most of my actual growing up in Megalia in, in Upper Megalia, but I think when you're, you know, um, part of that community, like, you know, anywhere from sort of Sterling City to Paradise, you're you're definitely mostly considered a Paradisian. But yeah, and then I had family. I had a grandma in Orville and my dad was from Orville. My mom um moved to Paradise when she was really young and it's it was just, you know, like for me it was the nature and, and just kind of that small town feel that um, just the traditions and the familiar faces. And I, I think honestly, it's, it's hard to kind of identify with those things when you're young. And, you know, I had an eye for the outside and just really wanted to kind of travel and, and see what else there was. But then after I've done that and I've traveled the world and I've done a lot of things that I've really set out to do, you really start to appreciate what the places that really brought you up brought to your life. And I think for me, I really appreciate a lot of it more now as an adult than I ever did as a kid. And that led to this board game, which helps your community in the aftermath of the campfire. When did the idea for Paradise Opoly begin? It began uh, very shortly after the fire. All, pretty much all of the family that we had in the area, um, the homes were destroyed. So our grandmother, like I said, still lived in Orville. So we ended up having about three families down there staying for the first month or so for everyone kind of got a little bit back on their feet but we would just be you know hanging around with not much to do and playing monopoly as we would do and just seeing the outpouring seeing all the donations seeing um all the help coming in and i would do you know whatever i could to kind of help in small ways but just really wanted to to be able to do something more substantial and it just started as a really small idea one day when we were playing i just thought hey it'd be really cool if, if i made a you know really detailed cool game like this about paradise and i could sell it and make some money and, and donate it and it was just a kind of oddball idea that would normally just kind of you know drift in the wind and for some reason it really stuck and within the next couple of weeks i was fully committed to doing it and following through even though i at that time had no idea what i was getting into and what it would become as a project but it was just ultimately something i wanted to do to help yeah i would imagine an idea is one thing but um i don't know if your board game experienced in terms of actually building and creating a board game no and i wouldn't even really consider myself like a, a big gamer i mean you know definitely socially and with friends and with family sometimes but uh, you know like there's just huge board game enthusiasts out there with shelves full of you know just any kind of board game you can imagine and that really wasn't necessarily me but it was just a fun idea that i thought i could set my mind to and do and yeah it it, it really just kind of took shape a, a, as i went through it and uh, as i got you know guidance from certain good sources that i had really evolved massively throughout the whole process. You know, I've been up to Paradise and the surrounding communities several times over the years, starting with the campfire, but also in the years after as people rebuilt. And you, along with so many other people, were just scattered all over and so many people didn't come back. But this board game, just taking a look at it, really gets to the heart and the spirit of, of being from Paradise. Help us visualize what this board game actually helps people feel and help people remember uh, about their beloved town. Well, it it really it really became 
something special, I think, um, through all the details. And I think the biggest thing that it really does is it elicits a feeling of home. And I think that that, that feeling of home is an indescribable feeling. You can name a place, you can name an address, you can name, you know, certain things, but truly that feeling of, of home that you long for when you're away from it and that you are just enveloped in when, when you're, you know, really feeling that sense of community and tradition and history. That's what I wanted to elicit through this game and through playing it and through reading through all the stories and all of the familiar sites with the artwork and just, I think that that's really what it does. I think there's a lot of people that, that still are struggling with their memories of the town and, and only, only focusing on the destruction and the trauma that they went through escaping the town that day. And there's people that, that escaped for their lives and fled and have never been back and to have, you know, at this point, no intention of going back. And I think for some of them, um, who they've told me that, that it's been the first time they've been able to remember the town and the positive memories without being flooded with that grief and that trauma. Yeah. And I think, I think that that was something that I never thought it would, it would be when I initially, you know, set out with this, but it has been uncovered and just through all the time and the detail and, and the nuance of everything that I, I wanted to, to go into it. That's really what started to come across. I was reading one of the reviews of the game because it's now available for purchase and it really just hits home how, you know, being from paradise can go back generations. Uh, the person who left a review said that, you know, their their father had moved to paradise in like the early 1900s. You know, they had been there since, you know, the 30s. They were also impacted by the campfire as well. And just thinking about those generations and the decades, you know, behind this wonderful town. How did you narrow it down to choosing what landmarks and pieces to use for your board game? So, I mean, that was definitely one of one of the most challenging parts and one of the most nerve-wracking parts because I I knew very early on that I didn't want to have to make that make those decisions on my own and decide, you know, just based on my kind of my subjective opinion of what would be the the top or most favorite things. So I involved the community. And one of the first things I did was I started a Facebook group and just kind of petitioned the idea of the game and people really latched onto it. And, and I wanted to gather their, their thoughts and their opinions. And that's what I did. And I started doing all these posts where I would, um, just ask, you know, what's your favorite restaurant? What's your favorite, uh, you know, neighborhood or, or, or just, you know, historical events and things like that. And would log every single comment and suggestion and everything that I got and then put them up to a vote and sort of did it as like inclusive and diplomatically as I could. And, um, I think it really did kind of narrow down a good overall, um, you know, kind of agreed upon selection of, of what would go into the game with just the limited space there was. I mean, that was, you know, knowing that there was going to be so many things still left out was a really hard part of the process, but I, I was able to, to use the community to um, kind of do that with me. And it made them a part of the creation of it too. And people love that. They love that they, that I was able to include them and have it really, you know, at that, at that level of the, that stage of the development, it was, it was a community process. 
Give us a little bit of, of a tour of the board game. What what are some pieces and landmarks that stand out to you? Um, I think that it's for me, it's it's the little nuanced details. It's some of the things that just locals will kind of understand and get. Um, like there's one one card um, in in one of the draw cards, which is the the roll the dice card, and it says you got got a ticket from the paradise police department for catching air off of the elliot bump and you have to go back four spaces and the elliot bump is just this this big dip and and kind of almost jump in the in on this road elliot road in paradise and it's been there for years in all different shapes and forms when there used to be the railroad tracks there so um people notoriously either purposefully or accidentally catch some pretty good air off of that so it's it's just little things like that that are um, kind of funny and and special and known to locals that i i wanted to you know not just the obvious landmarks and and things like that but really put subtle things in there so just kind of filling it out with that was was special to me and putting the extra time and effort to do that do you have billy park in there Billy Park is in there. That was that was one that got chosen. Yeah, but one of my favorite parks. I would add the duck the duck pond. Oh, the duck pond. I also yeah. saw that you have Apple Tree Village, and I had spent on multiple occasions time with Stephen Murray. He worked at the mobile home park there, and he helped over two hundred residents evacuate. What went into having Apple Tree Village part of the board game? Yeah, I, I actually met Stephen not too long after the fire too. Just kind of teaming up with some of his efforts and ended up helping him with his his uh, coral apple foundation and and all that but but apple tree was um that was the number one choice i i, I wanted to there were so many uh, mobile home parks in town and so many great ones too that you know i knew that needed to be kind of a representation you know that sort of side of the community needed to be represented and um through the vote that was that was the top choice yeah. Rightfully so, I think. Yeah, yeah. But some may argue that, but I, you know, they're all great. But that's just, you know, that was the hard part. I mean, yeah, there was there was a majority vote on that, but it's still leaving out, um, you know, without writing an entire book on every, you know, every part and piece of of history and paradise. That's just kind of how how by design it had to be. Given that you had such a strong level of engagement from people uh, wanting to be part of this board game, was it cathartic being able to kind of work on this piece as a community, even when you weren't all physically together? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was really a, you could really feel kind of the, the group aspect to, um, you know, putting all this stuff on the board and knowing that it was what people wanted to see on there and i think in that process it was kind of humbling to see you know folks have to reminisce that much and i mean really just the whole process itself i think other than the outcome was the best thing was the most rewarding thing to watch it was um in this time of i mean this was you know just in the six months eight months after the fire and so much grief and so much sorrow around what we had lost and it was ended up being a very positive activity for people to kind of come together and reminisce and comment and you know see their friends commenting and 
it ended up being a very positive space for people to come and um, you know remember remember the the positive about it. How did it feel to play it for the first time? Uh, um, to play it for the first time when I finally had like a full prototype of it was really emotional. I you know got to see pieces of it kind of come together along the way, but then. I do remember the the first time that I got a full prototype with the box and everything put together um, from the factory, and I think we definitely celebrated that day. I mean, it was it was just a, a huge milestone. Um, and you know, I would play prototypes and self made kind of homemade prototypes through through a lot of the process, but just having it all there in front of me was a bit overwhelming and was you know it was really hard to um to kind of put it into words and I, I would i would do a lot of that trying to write and share my share the different milestones and things online and, and the blogging and it was it was really special it was a really special milestone given that you don't currently live in paradise have you been back yeah i'm, I'm back there all the time i kind of took a change with a with a girlfriend moving out to arizona about a year ago and you know still still have my heart there and and so much so many friends and um so much to be back there for and my family um, most of my family is now in southern oregon so so close to them up there so um yeah i i uh, i spend probably half my time up there and i mean really between here there and and i work in los angeles and kind of all over so I'm I'm a bit of a, a nomad in that sense, but home base is Arizona, and and my my heart base is is in paradise. Yeah, as well as so many others. Right. Finally, Tanner, this board game Paradise Opoly is available for purchase in you know in, in in Paradise as well as in Chico, and I believe in Oroville as well. People can also buy it online, and it can get delivered to their home. When people actually take in this game, they begin playing it. I mean, you say this on your website. It, it was never meant to be a representation of the wildfire, of the campfire, but to really preserve the spirit of paradise. How do you hope this game will reflect paradise's identity? Um, I really wanted to just, you know, reflect the legacy of paradise and what what we all know and remember, not so much, you know, what was lost, but I mean, it is what was lost, but we want to honor and you know hold close to the past, but not always be reminded of the destruction. And I think that that's what this does. And I, th- I think that it really just embodies a lot of the the core memory of what paradise is. And I like to call it you know a memoir for paradise in the form of a board game. And even for you know kids who are growing up that really won't have known a lot of what what was there and where they live and for people visiting for the first time or moving there for the first time it's it's an educational tool too and i mean it could be used in schools it could be um you know it's a history book in the form of a board game so it's just kind of a fun way to really remember and know what paradise truly was yeah and the attention of the board game too uh, and this is important to mention is that the net profits will go to help the town as well through a variety of nonprofits, right, Tanner? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I have a, a few, um, you know, nonprofits that I, 
I'm working closely with uh, Regenerating Paradise and of course Stephen Murray and all his efforts and the North Valley Community Foundation has been a huge support to the project as well and you know I I want to just do anything that I can even still this you know years out it's there's there's still efforts needed and there's still people struggling to get home and uh, affordable housing projects are a big part of what I want to donate to and you know, I've learned that unless I really scale this massively, it, it's not going to be, you know, a severely substantial amount that I would I would be able to donate. At least I say that now, but we'll we'll see. But I, I think what I've really learned is what we talked about, just how how special and how therapeutic this can be to some. I think overall, just it being something so special that can be be around for years is probably the best thing that's going to come out of this. Tanner, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Tanner Staus is the creator of Paradiseopoly, a board game based on the classic Monopoly board game. Staus plans to use the net earnings from the game to help his hometown of Paradise and neighboring communities Megalia, Polga, and Konkal rebuild from the campfire. We have a link to the game's website on our Insight page. And that is it for Insight today. You can learn more about our guests at capradio.org slash insight. You can also subscribe to the Insight podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. You can also shoot us an email, insight at capradio.org. Thank you to producers Nick Dobis and Victor Corral-Martinez with managing editor Arm Sarkissian. Our digital producer is Megan Minata. Insight's technical director is Mark Jones, and our engineer is Chris Feltz. Our show music is produced by Adrian Gilmore. And I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.